In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I had mentioned this last week, as the church year draws to the close, our texts begin to focus on the close of the age, the end of days. With these texts, God means to sober us, to give us perspective, much needed perspective. That there is going to be a reckoning, a settling of accounts, and much is at stake if we lose sight of this foundational fact, that God will not only come to judge the world, but each one of us individually. He will take into judgment every thought, word, and deed. What, what happens if this perspective is lost? Well, we end up not sober. We end up like those we see in the world all around us who think that there is never going to be a reckoning, who do not think they will ever be judged, at least not finally, by anyone other than their neighbors, on every thought, word, and deed. And this loss of perspective is evident. There is no other way to explain the madness that we see all around us. Mass gatherings and protests in favor of a genocidal terrorist organization like Hamas, or here in Ohio, the enshrining into our state constitution the right of mothers to kill their own children. And for what end? For what purpose? Why? Right? Why would we do this? So that men and women may follow their unfettered, self-destructive lusts without the uh, obligation of children? The death of children to pay for a moment's pleasure? How can one hope to stand before the judgment with that? So too we have in our culture celebrities who self-appoint themselves like priests and pastors. They put themselves up before our eyes as if they had a great commissioning from God to tell us little people what we should think and what we should do. How could one be so blind? How can one be so drunk on their own ego by losing sight of the reckoning that is to come? And of course, we cannot leave out the big tech corporate visionaries who seek to recreate the world as if they were demigods ushering us into some glorious future, as if they were our saviors and Christ was not. A complete lack of sobriety. And so important is sobriety. And note, right, that Paul is speaking about a spiritual sobriety, not simply about uh, use of alcohol. But so important is sobriety that we heard the Apostle Paul mention it twice in just our short little reading. When we lose sight of the reckoning and the judgment, when God allows us to prosper, all the more do we think that we need no God. All the more do we delve into a kind of cynicism. We heard Zephaniah criticize that cynicism. He puts words to their thoughts. The Lord will not do good nor will he do ill. And isn't that the perspective of people all around us today? If there is a God, he's not going to do anything. He's not going to do good or ill. Everything is by chance. Everything is subject to chance. He doesn't care. He's indifferent. And that is the question that I will pose to you today. 
Is God indifferent? Is he indifferent? Well, the people Zephaniah preached to thought that he was. And boy, were they proven wrong. Indeed, God's people were proven wrong twice when the Assyrians came down and took away the ten northern tribes. And then again when the Babylonians came and took the two southern tribes. Judgment did come. For centuries, God sent prophet after prophet calling his people to repentance. And they ignored them. They rejected them. They persecuted them. And even martyred them. God is patient. But we do not mistake his patience for indifference. Jesus, our Savior, would have us be sober. He would have us be spared the judgment and the wrath to come. It is remarkable, if you read the Gospels, how often Jesus speaks and preaches about wrath and judgment and about the, all, uh, about the end of times. It is as if Jesus, our Lord, thinks that these things are important and it is good for us to hear about them. And so it is. And so the parable that he tells today is a parable of warning for those who have ears to hear. He tells a parable about a man who is very, very wealthy. Who puts everything he has, all his possessions, into the hands of his servants. At least that's how our English text, the ESV, rendered it. But a better translation, which is a little less PC, is slaves. He puts everything into the hands of his slaves. And now, why ought we to emphasize that word slave that has so many negative connotations in our culture? Because a slave is owned. right? And that is precisely the gospel foundation of our text. We are not our own. We are owned. No longer do we belong to Satan. No longer do we belong to the world or sin and death. No longer are we slaves to our own sinful passions. We belong to Jesus. We are slaves to his forgiveness and to his righteousness. He has purchased us, not with gold or silver, but with his own holy precious blood. Once and for all, we belong to him and everything that he has, he gives to us. So gracious and loving and merciful is he. Now in the parable, this master gives five talents to the first servant, two to the second, and one to the third. A talent is a measurement of weight of precious metals. A single talent is worth something like 20 years of wages. So the five talents is 100 years worth of wages. The two talents, 40 years worth of wages, and the one is 20 years. These are huge, lavish sums of money he simply hands over. So gracious and good is he. And that is perhaps the most stunning thing that we see in today's parable, is what those first two servants do. They are given this monumental sum of money, and what do they do? They immediately go out and risk it all. Right? If they lost it, how could they ever repay it? Why would they do something like that? It is because they believed about their master what you believe about yours. He is good, he is gracious, and he is merciful. And if they came back saying to him, Master, we lost it all, what would he say to them? 
forgive you. The very same thing he says to each and every one of you when you come and confess on Sunday morning. Father, you gave me everything and I lost it all. I forgive you, he says. So the first two, because they know who their master is, they know his love, they know his mercy, they are fearless. So great is his love for them that they love him in return and they want want to prosper the things that are his and they want to share it with others. But not that third man. He goes out and digs a hole and sticks the money in there, almost putting it to death, burying it. And you want to know what else he does? What else did that lazy servant do? Nothing. Nothing at all. He simply lives for himself. When the day of reckoning comes, the master returns after a long delay. And notice that theme from last week, right? We had the long delay between the bridegrooms come with the ten virgins. And this week we have a long delay in the master's coming. God is patient, but he is not indifferent. So he comes to settle accounts. First comes the one who had received the five talents. He says, not only do I have your five, but with your money, I have made five more. And God blesses him and then crowns that blessing with more blessings. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much, the master says. Enter into the joy of your master. How we should all long to hear those words on the day when we die, when the day, uh, the day we are greeted by Jesus. Uh, let's see here. The same thing, right, happens with the two talents. The man with the two talents comes to him and says, you gave me two talents, and with those two, I have made two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then finally comes that third servant. And what does he say? Master, I knew that you were a hard man. Right out of the gate, he insults him. Does he know anything of the master's love? Does he know anything of his master? His attack continues. You are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And then he says, so I was afraid. What is that that's called playing the victim? That's called being passive-aggressive, right? You evil, bad man. It's your fault. I was afraid of you, so I hid your money in the ground. Here, take it back. Have what is yours. Oh, let me get that dirt off of it for you, right? But this master answered him, you wicked and lazy servant. He knows. He knows that the servant lives for no one but himself. You knew what I, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed? Is that right? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see the point? The first two servants knew who their master was. They knew his great love, and they loved him in return. This man did not know his master, and he doesn't love him in the least. It's not that this servant did less than the others. It's not that he didn't do enough. It's that he did nothing at all. He didn't act as a slave who belongs to a gracious master. What did he act like? As a judge. He acted as a judge, a slave who sits in judgment over his master. He says to his master, you are a hard man. So what's the moral of this story? Don't be that guy, right? Don't be that guy. Don't sit in judgment over God. Don't forget who you are and who your master is, lest you sit in judgment over the Almighty. Who are we to put God in the dock and sit in judgment over him? Is God indifferent? Absolutely not. He passionately loves each and every one of you. He is not ashamed of you. You belong to him. You are his. And he is not indifferent in the least. And he tells these parables of judgment precisely because he is not indifferent, right? Precisely so that you might not enter into judgment. So that we would not be afraid of him. So that we would know that when he comes in judgment, it is no different than when he comes to us every Sunday. The same one who you come before this morning is the one whose throne you will stand before on the day of judgment. And what does he say to you? For you and for the forgiveness of your sins. And on the last day, what will he say to you? Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, how we should all wish to hear those words. Cleansed by his blood, our sins washed away. Not one of our iniquities remembered. Not one sin counted against us. He looks upon each of us and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I love that. Because what is the world? A little. Just a little. Your earthly life, all the things that you own, your friends, your family, all gifts of God given to you so that you might be faithful over this little sphere, that you may use your time and money for the honor and glory of God, so that you may love those in your life as God loves you, and so that you might be rewarded for your faithfulness. God bestows gifts upon us and then blesses those blessings and crowns us With even more, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into my joy. You see what our Lord Jesus is doing. We come to Holy Communion as if we are coming to the judgment. So that when the judgment comes, it is like we are coming to Communion. It's the same Lord Jesus, the same gracious master whose body and blood was broken for you and shed for you that sits on the judgment seat. What blessed hope and what sweet assurance is that? So gracious and good is he. May it be all our heart's desires to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
enter into the joy of your master. And because you know your master and you know his love, may it be your firm conviction that that's precisely what you will hear on the day of judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.